Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hi, everyone. Today's Real Vision Daily Briefing is sponsored by CraneShares. Learn about their KCCA ETF at craneshares.com forward slash KCCA forward slash Real Vision. Now to the top analysis of today's markets. Is the Fed on hold? Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. With me today is Darius Dow, founder of 42 Macro. Hi, Darius. Hey, Maggie. It's great to see you. Thanks for having me. How you doing? Great to see you, too. I'm doing well. Markets are little all over the place today. The focus continues to be treasury yields. We have that 10-year sitting right below that 5% level. And we saw stocks really swinging around. Jerome Powell was sort of center stage today. As usual, he tried to give everybody something. Um, and, you know, we did see that stocks were up and they, they sold off, they recovered, they went back down. What do you think, like, as you're looking at your information, is the Fed on hold here? Oh, great question. Uh, the phenomenal question. I mean, based on Jay Powell's commentary today, obviously the Economic Club of Washington, or is it New York or Washington? Who cares? Yeah. They seem like they're going to be on hold. But I'll say this. The bond market ain't on hold. <laughs> the, the bond market is in the driver's seat now. And the thing that is controlling the bond market, I tweeted about this weeks ago, uh, maybe even a m- couple months ago. I said, it's no longer about bean counting and watching the paint dry on Federal Reserve policy. Our focus needs to shift on the economy, how long it's going to remain resilient, and how long transitory Goldilocks in terms of the immaculate disinflation we were observing was going to continue. Because once those things stop, we're going to have a whole different set of outcomes in financial markets. Yeah. And we have seen the data coming in stronger than expected. I think someone say, like, go back and try to find the last time there was a piece of data that was much weaker than expected. But you still have people out there. Like, there is this still this argument that, yes, some things, maybe the lagging things are still strong, but underneath you have signs of weakness. So it just depends on what you look like, look at. Um, Bernanke did say inflation is still too high. Uh, so how are you thinking about, you've been saying for a long time that the economy is stronger than people expect and that was going to be a problem. Anything change your mind? No, if anything, we're getting incremental evidence of the resiliency of the U.S. economy. Um, This is something you and I have been talking about since August of last year. Uh, Nothing's changed on that front. Um, If you go back to Tuesday's data, we got retail sales. We accelerated to about 6% three-month annualized. That's well north of the longer run mean uh, industrial production, which is something we called out a few months ago in terms of the likelihood that we'd see a manufacturing rebound, at least transitory one, here in the U.S. economy. Industrial production accelerated to 5.2% through methanolized. That's the highest number we've seen in, in several quarters, and obviously well north of anything that we saw you know, prior to the pandemic. So we now have the consumer uh, uh, growing at an above-trend pace, uh, a sequential above-trend pace. We have the manufacturing side of the economy growing at a sequential above-trend pace. And oh, by the way, by the way, we have inflation reaccelerating as well. And it ain't just headline. It is a broad-based reacceleration in inflation that no one is paying attention to, but they will be by the end of the year. 
Yeah, I mean, so it seems like the bond market's paying attention to it, or no, they haven't really priced that in yet. Well, on the margins, the bond market is paying attention to that, but a lot of the move we've seen in the in the back end of the, the treasury curve has primarily come through real interest rates, and through that, primarily through a backup in term premium. Uh, so part of the you know the, the argument is being made is well one we just have a higher structurally neutral level of interest rates across the entire treasury curve as a function of this accepted resiliency of the U.S. economy and the you know the resistance to uh, what is you know historically thought to be a very high uh, policy rate uh, but there's also treasury supply concerns don't forget President Biden uh, yesterday sort of pledged another hundred billion dollars uh, to add to the deficit that's right around nine percent of the year-to-date budget deficit we've accumulated thus far. And we're talking about, hey, it's, what's another 100 billion amongst friends, literally? <laughs> uh, and the treasury market is obviously not liking that as it looks out and sees, you know, you know, supply as far as the eye can see in terms of trillion, $2 trillion budget deficits uh, for years to come. Yeah. Uh, Biden addressing the nation from the Oval Office on that issue, trying to make the case for additional spending to both Israel and Ukraine. Uh, for those who haven't seen the interview yet, Peter Zion and I talked a lot about that. Uh, and uh, in, in the interview that's on the platform. And by the way, we still are struggling with Congress that still doesn't have a speaker. So getting that stuff through, it's it's complicated and problematic. You bring up a really interesting point though. And again, we have been having many conversations, you and I have discussed this, about the role of fiscal here now. It's not just monetary, it's fiscal. Uh, Roger Hurst sat down with uh, Michael Nicolotis uh, today and tackled that question um, about the inputs that are affecting inflation and what that means for long-term inflation. Do we need to think about it differently? Let's have a listen to that clip and we'll talk on the other side. So I think we're, we're, we're witnessing inflation, which is mostly supply-driven. We've seen rates go higher. Inflation has come down, but not as fast as the central banks would want. And I think we're here to stay in terms of inflation. I think the 3% is something we're going to be see we're going to see for some time. I don't think we're going to see seven, eight, ten, fifteen percent, but three percent is two to three percent. I think is here to stay. So my view on the macro landscape, I don't think central banks will raise rates more. I think they will keep here and try to see how long they can last at these levels. Because as you know better than me, we've seen data that shows that. The economy, the global economy is slowing down, production is slowing down. There are a lot of data points showing that there is a slowdown. However, markets have not gone down. And the reason, in my view, markets haven't gone down is, uh, and I agree with Raul on this, is markets are driven by liquidity. And given all the policies that the central banks have done in terms of reverse policies and MMF uh, functions, this is liquidity accredited for the system. That interview with Michael Nicoletos. I don't know why I was tripping over his name beforehand. There's a lot to, there's a lot to hold in our minds these days. That full interview is on the website. Uh, they cover a lot of ground. Roger and Michael tackle the question of um, hard landing or not, market correction or not, how to trade this environment. Um, it's a masterclass. If you're not a member or you want to upgrade to Plus, because that is on Plus, uh, just go to our website and you can see all the offers available. Um, so Darius, um, you, you, you've you certainly been talking about inflation for a while, but um, should we be thinking about a sort of structurally higher inflation situation now? 
Uh, yes, absolutely. I would definitely agree with the uh, the analyst um, interpretation that three is the new two. In fact, this is something we've been uh, talking, uh, we've been explaining to our clients at 42 Macro for all, all better part of two years now. Uh, uh, Brian, if you can put a slide three on the screen where we show our secular inflation model. Uh, so this model is designed to interpolate the change in 20 features that we know to be correlated or co-integrated from studying various white papers uh, with the underlying trend in, in core PC inflation. Uh, and what we find is that, you know, when we interpolate that change on an unweighted basis, we're looking at a, a new trend of core PC inflation that's somewhere around 2.5%. That's up from 1.6% in the prior decade. When we interpolate those changes of those variables on a weighted basis, we're talking about core PC trending at 3.1%, again, up from 1.6% uh, in the previous decade. So uh, according to our, our math and our models, it suggests that, hey, we're going to be just trending at 3%. You know, we'll go below when we have a down cycle in growth and, and the economy. We'll go above it when we start to recover again. But that new mean that we're oscillating around is somewhere between 25 and 3.1%. And that obviously has significant implications as it relates to asset markets, because there's a Federal Reserve that's sort of stuck looking backwards with a 2% inflation target. Uh, it's our view that at some point in the next you know, three to five years, we will see the Fed formally adopt a 3% inflation target. It's probably going to do that in several steps. First, they're going to accept two and a half. As, you know, we're going to be trending back towards two and a half in this mm -hmm. particular business cycle. Um, they're, they're probably not going to get well below two without a recession. And when we bounce back up from that recession, it's going to be pretty clear that we're bouncing back up from a level that is inconsistent uh, with 2% inflation. So they'll accept that as the first step. And then the second step, eventually the bond market will tell them uh, that they're going to have to get, uh, accept three uh, as a consequence of the sort of the fiscal largesse that we continue to see uh, in the U.S. economy. Yeah, it's interesting. I love this uh, chart and and um, we'll share it if you're having trouble seeing it, but it has so many of the things that go into this conversation about inflation, right? Sometimes we just think energy, and I do want to talk to you about oil because that you know that can feed through, and it's something we all feel. But there are so many things, and I and I love seeing them all listed out like this because it is quite complex. But what what about energy, uh, especially yeah. now that we have tension in the Middle East? I mean, it's not it's not hitting a, a you know. Uh, Israel's not an exporter of oil necessarily, but still, we just don't know how that's going to game out. What, what do you see happening with oil? Yeah, great question, Maggie. So uh, for those who are not paying attention to the data as closely as, as we try to, at least for our clients, um, energy inflation in the most recent month of September accelerated to 29.3% on a three-month annualized basis. That is well north of the year-over-year rate of change of minus 0.5%. So there is a significant energy inflationary impulse ahead of us in the coming months. Uh, one of the things that scares me and keeps me up at night uh, as an investor is the obviously the tension in the geopolitical situation uh, in the Middle East. Obviously, it's a horrible humanitarian crisis, mm. but it, you know, just you know, separating that from you know the risk management that we have to do in our portfolios, there is a big problem if this if this if this threat spreads to a broader proxy war uh, between you know the U.S. and Iran and other uh, Arab nations. And the reason I say that is, uh, Brian, if you throw a slide one up on the um, on, on, on the monitor there. The key takeaway here is in terms of how, how precarious this potential situation is, is that neither U.S. Shale nor the SPR are in position to respond to these incremental threats. So we are currently producing a, a peak level of, of crude supply here in the U.S. economy. We're doing that on almost peak uh, efficiency when you divide the total amount of barrels that we're producing per day divided by the rig count. And then when you look at the SPR, which Biden obviously used as a political ploy uh, to buy votes ahead of the midterm last year, is now back at levels we haven't seen since the SPR was created back in the early 80s. So we are now in no longer the US 
you know, this big, you know, kind of um, uh, behemoth in this is global energy um, complex is no longer in position to really respond to these incremental energy supply threats. And that's exactly why I throw a slide too, Brian. Um, that's exactly why we're hearing rumors of rolled back sanctions on Venezuelan crude. And, you know, so it's like we're, we're concerned about atrocities, but there's now this new bigger atrocity. So we'll stop paying attention to that old atrocity so we can get more crude uh, supply into the market. We'll see if there's anything, any validity uh, to the rumors that they're going to be rolling back uh, sanctions on Venezuela, because that's one thing that could alleviate some pressure uh, through the energy market on inflation. Uh, we have Venezuelan crude oil exports down 68 uh, percent since their peak uh, back in 2017. So that's definitely a, a huge boost to crude oil. Don't forget Venezuela has the largest proven crude oil reserves in the world, and they're effectively offline just because of the U.S. sanctions. Hey, everyone. We're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. How quickly they get back online, I think, is an issue. We're going to, I think, yeah, because they, they've had years of underinvestment. I mean, there is yeah. a, you know, but, uh, you know, we're going to, uh, Andres is catching up with doing a, a, a sort of focused energy conversation. We talked about this yesterday in the chat. Um, and as usual, the fantastic team's already ahead of us. We've got that coming um, as well as another um, energy, uh, Harry Melandri is doing another energy conversation, um, and we're going to cover cover the gamut. So stay tuned for the, both of those. We will let you know when they're coming, but we're going to do a kind of a deep dive into all of these issues um, because it is important. But that's a great stat about that huge increase um, year over year because I think sometimes people are, do lose sight of that. Um, one question. Uh, let's see, Roger's asking, cause it's, it's sort of right what we're talking about. Is 3% enough? Don't we need at least 4% to make a meaningful, uh, dent in the debt? So we're sort of, sort of saying it hovers, it settles around 3%. Doesn't mean it's exactly 3%. It could be higher. Sovereign economies don't pay off debt. That the, the assumption that we need to pay off our debt is a flawed assumption. As long as we can roll over the debt, we're fine. The issues as it relates to investors and, and obviously the spillover impacts to the broader economy is when the capital markets no longer allow us to roll over that debt uh, for some you know perceived reason or another. Um, so in our opinion, we are headed for that in terms of the work we've done, uh, the empirical work we've done on the fourth turning in our, in our two most recent macro scouting reports. Uh, one of the key conclusions is that you should hammer the over on CBO, IMF, and you know PTJ, Stan Druckenmiller projections on where the US public debt is headed uh, because that's historically the pattern that we've typically seen in fourth turnings, and I'm not sure uh, folks have done enough research to understand uh, that pattern. Uh, so, so we we are headed for something that looks like the UK gold crisis here in America. I'm not sure that it's this particular business cycle, but I do believe that as we progress throughout this decade, we will continue to you know be my you know dragged into geopolitical uh, uh, consternation. We'll have you know domestic consternation and populism here domestically. Obviously, we have a retirement crisis and. And Medicare crisis here in the U.S., all those things are going to come to a head in this fourth turning and, and not likely, you know, drag the Treasury market down with it. And that was exactly the question Andrew was asking about. Could we see something like that 
Um, what are the conditions that will be required for that to happen and how will it impact our 401 accounts and our cost of living in general? And that, is, well, that will not be a good situation. Well, I say if you're on autopilot still living in the pre pre previous, you know, disinflationary regime and, and some version of the 60-40 portfolio or, you know, you know, some version of that, right? Mm -hmm. That worked in the prior great moderation disinflationary era. That was the perfect portfolio construction for that particular um, um, time, not just because inflation and nominal growth were falling the entire time, but also because when you get to 2% inflation, we've done a tremendous amount of a statistic, uh, statistical analysis on this, is that 2% inflation is the, is, the, is the level of inflation where stocks and bonds are most inversely correlated. They get less inversely correlated when you go towards deflation and beyond deflation. They get less inversely correlated when you go from 2% you know, inflation to something higher, and that correlation actually flips to positive once you cross the 3% threshold, which is where we think inflation will you know, kind of trend in this, in this decade, according to our secular inflation model. So you know, this has significant implications for portfolio construction. We've been arguing, we've been, I've been having conversations like this with institutional investors for nearly two years. Mm. Um, and it's now becoming, you know, sort of, you know, on the tape, it's becoming consensus because of what was happening in the bond market. But this was all very relevant and very, you know, easy to see if you were doing the analysis the entire time. Yeah, and it's a big one. And and I I bet if we ran the numbers, a lot of people are still locked into something that even if they, even if they're not realized, it looks a lot like 60-40, even if they've been tweaking it at the edges. And we, we need to worry about that. And Maggie, here's the, here's the big issue. It's, it's, how many people have seen three years? I think this is the first time in U.S. bond market history that we've seen three consecutive down years uh, in the bond market. How many yeah. people are sitting on those capital losses and don't want to do anything different because of it? Yeah. That stasis, in my opinion, is one of the things that's going to keep this train rolling until we get a cathartic, you know, type event. Yeah, uh, Timothy asking. Uh, Fourth turning. So, DD, where should we be looking? Equities, high growth, commodities, energy, all of the above. Risk management is the number one question to answer. The number one answer to that question, in my opinion, uh, because we have a view that in response to any sort of crisis in the treasury market, it could be a series of crises. You know, it's not to say that we're going to have one big bang crisis. It could be a you know collection of crises as we progress forward in time for various reasons. The Fed is obviously going to be the you know the the, the backstop to the treasury market come hell or high water. Um, you know, they're going to have to change their inflation target. They're going to have to move the goalposts in terms of what drives their monetary policy making decisions. Uh, and ultimately, they will be the backstop. They'll, they'll they have plenty of scope and, and ample capacity to financially repress commercial banks into the treasury market as well. So there are avenues out of this mess, but we have to go through the mess to get to those avenues out of this mess. And obviously, the avenues out of this mess effectively equate to more liquidity, more financial repression, more currency debasement. These are all things that empirically we've determined that are very high probability outcomes in fourth earnings, having done the empirical analysis on that. And so we understand that those things typically cause stocks to go up a lot, gold to go up a lot, Bitcoin to go up a lot, pick your risk asset. So there will be plenty of time to make plenty of money uh, throughout this decade, despite all the negative kind of connotations around the fourth earning uh, that, that sort of um, that you should expect as a human being and as an investor. It's not this linear ride down. It's not going to be a linear ride up in terms of your portfolio. So that's why I answered the question, risk management. You're going to need more than ever in the history of your investing life, because most people aren't old enough to remember and weren't investing in the 70s. You will need someone or something that can help you 
you know, better time asset markets and get in and out of exposures at the right times. And I, you know, I'm not saying it's us, I'm not saying whoever yeah. it is, but I think it's very important to understand that we're going to see a lot of financial market volatility in the, in the years ahead. It's a great, great observation, Darius. And I think this is why we all lean, I know you do as well, we lean into education so much because we are all going to have to, you know, sort of make sure that we are much more engaged. Uh, you want to be able to talk to whatever financial advisor you're using if you're not doing it yourself and make sure that you feel confident that they are <laughs> engaged and up on the type of risk management. Because let's face it, everything's been passive. So even if you have a, a 401 advisor, you need to make sure that um, everything is a lot more active. So I think that's a just a really good point to underscore and to let people know. Can, um, can I make one quick plug? Sure, please. If your financial advisor isn't a subscriber of Real Vision or 42 Macro, you need to get a new financial advisor because the work we're doing on helping investors understand these long-term dynamics is the kind of work that I fly around the world to talk to institutional investors yeah. about. And if your financial advisor doesn't understand these dynamics, God help your portfolio. Yeah, no, it's it's really true. And we are coming out of this period that it was, you know, it was different. Um, so I think it's a good thing to, for everybody to kind of check in on. Um, with, with that in mind, we have a lot more coming on the Academy, including a whole crypto. I think I'm allowed to talk about that. We talked a little bit about festival learning, which is all online, by the way. We've got crypto coming um, because, you know, digital assets are going to be a part of what you need to understand when you're trying to look for opportunities. So um, be sure to check that all out. Okay, so we have some global liquidity. This is always super important. This is another thing that's hard for people who don't have the resources to kind of find this information. We get this question a lot. You have some great charts on global liquidity. I know that you and, and Ral and a lot of other people think this is really important. You need to pay attention to this. Walk us through what you're looking at when it comes to liquidity. Yeah, thank you, Maggie. I appreciate that intro because I, I do believe that we are one of the world's experts at this particular subject matter. Uh, I did put together a few charts to help investors understand where we are in the liquidity cycle, at least where I think we are in the liquidity cycle. Other people might have uh, differing views. Um, you know, citing back, you know, the, the conversation I had with Raul back in the um, back yeah. back in back in June. Uh, so, if you throw up slide four, uh, uh, Brian, uh, where we show our global liquidity proxy relative to the S and P, and then we show max drawdown studies for both of those uh, indicators in the second and third panel. Uh, in terms of, for those who are not familiar with our global liquidity proxy, it's the sum of the global central bank balance sheet, global broad money supply, and global FX reserves minus gold. There's three, you know, there's all different reasons why those are all, you know, in the in the in the time series. But what we know is that you know global liquidity, at least according to our proxy, is highly co-integrated with asset markets. Pick your market; it could be the treasury market, it could be the stock market. Um, but the one thing I'll say is that you know it bottomed in late 2022, and the recovery that we saw from basically October through the end of March was part of the reason we saw such a sharp rebound in risk assets, particularly crypto, you know, kind of in that time frame. Well, since April, and I think, you know, I was on this program and I called it out in real time that global liquidity was inflecting lower. Mm. And, you know, really since mid-April, we've kind of been trending lower in terms of global liquidity. That's the second panel in terms of that max drawdown study on slide four. On slide five, you can see this on an impulse basis. So on the top panel on slide five there, we show the global, our 42 macro global liquidity proxy we, this time we show it with global equity market cap. And in the second and third panels, we show the trailing three month momentum of each time series. And then I'll focus your eye on the second panel uh, where we show that the trailing three month momentum in the global liquidity impulse has been negative for each of the past six months. And so what you're seeing now, if you just kind of jump to slide six, you're seeing now the stock market, which had run up well in advance of where global liquidity was trending you know, in recent months, 
is now starting to correct down towards global liquidity. The bond market has you know, obviously been underperforming uh, the moves that we've seen in global liquidity. I would argue Ethereum has been underperforming the move we've seen in global liquidity. Bitcoin has been trading it perfectly. Um, you know, really, you know, really, I mean, it's been trading it perfectly for most of its life cycle. Um, so, you know, in our opinion, part of the reason we're seeing a correct part of the reason, not the only reason, but part of the reason we're seeing at-risk assets uh, transition from a buy-the-dip state to a sell-the-dip state is because the market is starting to catch down towards the negative impulse that we called out in global liquidity more than six months ago. We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. So why are we seeing this decrease in global liquidity? Do we know why that's happening? Yeah, so there's a, a combination of factors. One, we see, continue to see term premium widen the bond market. Bond market volatility is trending higher. Currency market volatility is trending higher. Those are direct drags on global liquidity, particularly from the perspective of the private sector and, and more importantly, from the perspective of the non-bank private sector, which creates a lot of the private sector liquidity. Obviously, we continue to have central banks uh, globally continue to lean against uh, liquidity, with the exception of uh, maybe the Bank of Japan, which has you know, kind of defended uh, the Treasury, um, the, BO, the yield curve control program uh, in recent weeks. But beyond that, China's been tightening because of the yuan's been depreciating. Obviously, we have QT, or not QT. We, don't have, we do not have QT in America. We have balance sheet roll-off. QT is selling bonds to the market. They're not selling a darn thing. It's balance sheet roll-off. Stop calling it QT. But we have balance sheet roll-off here in America. Balance sheet roll off in Europe, balance sheet roll off in England, and then all, a lot of these other major central banks are either keeping their balance sheet stasis or they're having the balance sheet roll off to defend their currencies against a raging bull market in the dollar. And, and also, we've obviously seen global manufacturing in a recession for quite a while. So global trade has declined as well. Yeah. And so that's weighed on global liquidity through the trade channel as well. So it's kind of been a, a confluence of factors, Maggie. And ultimately, it's it's been one of these things that's you know kind of weighing on you know, the volatility parameters of the markets. Yeah. This is, thank you for that. It's a great explanation um, because it's, it is so important. So it's, it's good for us to sort of have a full understanding of it. AJ asking a terrific question. If the Fed is done hiking, would long bonds be a good play? Eventually, yeah. When the economy really starts to slow some, 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 some you know, real nominal growth deceleration. The problem is the economy is doing the exact opposite. As we talked about the retail sales and industrial production print, uh, next Thursday, we're going to get GDP. Next Friday, we're going to get uh, the PCE report. Those are going to show incremental strength uh, in the U.S. economy as well. I'm guessing both will beat uh, because we continue to see economists' estimates for growth are lagging the actual realized results that we continue to observe in the economy. And one final thing, I don't think the bond market is out of the woods yet. You know, A lot of folks are probably going to see 5% on the Treasury yield, 275 on the 10-year tip yield and go, I got to lock that in. Those longer term, those are probably decent levels to, uh, to, to lock in if you think about you know, heading into recession maybe next year or potentially a year after that. But right now, that's probably going to be a bull trap. And the reason I say that is because, again, we're now seeing a renewed inflationary impulse in the, in the, in the, in the U.S. economy. You know, we go back and you look at um, the CPI report we got last Thursday. You know, we saw core CPI bottom at a level that was well hot, higher than its uh, pre-COVID trend and accelerate to 3.1% on a three-month annualized basis. We saw core services bottom at a level that was well above its previous trend and accelerate to 5.3% on a three-month annualized basis. We saw the same dynamic observed in shelter inflation reaccelerate to 5.5% three-month annualized. And then most damning of them all is super core CPI. You know, this is core services, CPI, X housing. So basically strip out everything you need to live, eat, drive, you know, like basically anything you need as an ordinary human. Once you strip all that out, which is what the Fed is paying attention to, 
We bottomed several months ago and have accelerated for each of the past three months. And now we are tracking at 4.7% on a three-month annualized basis in Supercore CPI, which obviously leads uh, Supercore PCE deflator. And so the reason that 4.7% matters is because it's more than 2x the pre-COVID trend. We are running effectively, if you strip out everything that you know makes inflation go up and down and only look at the thing that the Fed cares about, we're talking about running more than 2x the rate uh, that is consistent with 2% inflation. And so you know, bond markets really struggled in recent months because of treasury supply concerns, because of uh, the resiliency of growth, investors being forced to catch up to the resiliency of the economy, which is something, again, we've been talking about for 15 months on this program. But then also, I think the bond market has another leg lower once it realizes there is a, a, a secondary inflationary impulse developing in the U.S. economy. Yeah, and so many people have tried to time that bond trade and have just gotten smoked this year. It's been so, so difficult. So be careful because these moves in bonds, we're not used to seeing this sort of volatility in these very sharp moves. So it's been super painful. Um, Adam asking, I think I know the answer to this, but thoughts on cash now, keeping a lot in reserve or fairly fully deployed and cash versus gold versus Bitcoin. That part, I don't know. But um, we've talked about this before, Dale, uh, and we had Dale, another Darius. We've talked about this before. I have two we had Dale, <laughs> last night, we had Dale Pinkert on earlier this week who said, cash is a position. Like, don't think it's not, it's a position. So how are you thinking about that right now? Well, I, I love Dale, by the way, awesome dude. Um, but I actually have a disagreement with him. I think cash is a residual okay. of non-positions. So we run a systematic portfolio construction process for our clients around the world. Uh, and in one of the ways we, one of the ways in which it raises or lowers the cash position is not based on my thoughts about how much cash it should have, but rather through bot, our, what we call our bottom-up risk management overlay. And so at any given time, that KISS portfolio construction process can have five ETFs represented it, and you know three of the ETFs for the bond market, one of the ETFs for the stock market, and one of the ETFs is for what we call our macro exposures. That can be currencies, commodity, crypto, uh, et cetera. And that bottom-up risk management overlay dictates exactly the dynamic position sizing associated with each of those. So obviously, we can be 100% fully invested if, ever, if the dynamic position sizing, the bottom-up risk management overlay says we should be 100% invested in each of these ETFs as, 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 um, individually. But right now, the dynamic position sizing is telling us to dial it down and send all that money to cash. And so right now, we're at an elevated um, level of cash uh, in the KISS portfolio construction process, clipping that 55 6% coupon, depending on if you're an IG um, um, corporate paper or a short end of the treasury curve. And again, it's not because I, Darius is bearish or Darius thinks this or that about the economy and financial markets. This is a purely systematic process that's helping investors guide us through what is a highly uncertain economic and geopolitical time. Yeah, fantastic answer. This is why it's important to have a framework. I'm going to squeeze one last one in um, from Adam. Based on your, what you mentioned earlier, sounds like target date funds might perform poorly. Any suggestions <laughs> for friends and family that currently use them for their 401k? Yeah, so uh, one of our, uh, actually, I don't want to say that, but uh, someone I know well, uh, some a big institution that I know well, uh, I've been consulting them on how to reposition uh, target date funds uh, and remarket them because clearly they all suck because so many of them are in small cap stocks and, and loan bonds, right? <laughs> like, like, you know, it's like pick the two worst asset classes you could possibly have. And so uh, it's, a, it's a challenge because again, I think target date funds were born in the era of disinflation. They were born in the great moderation and they're a redheaded stepchild in this new higher nominal GDP environment that we're in. And this, this environment of you know, geopolitical, you know, sharp elbows from a geopolitical standpoint and really just the lack of cooperation globally. 
And ultimately, that's that's just not a good allocation. This is why people in on Wall Street get paid money. Mm-hmm. If it was easy, it's just putting all your money in something that somebody created 15 years ago and you wake up 30 years later and retire, we'd all be billionaire traders, wouldn't we? Yeah. But none of us are billionaire traders because this is actually really hard. And I'm not saying, you know, I'm God's gift to investing. I just do the same things over and over. And generally speaking, they work more than they don't. Yeah. Yeah, no, good point. Good point. And we're all going to have to lean into that expertise for sure, as as uh, this is a very, very tricky landscape. Darius, it always goes by so quickly. Um, wish we wish we had more time, but we know you'll be back on with us soon. Um, thank you for all of your insight and for the reminders you give everyone about how to really sort of need to plug in and be careful here. I think it's worth saying over and over again. So thank you for that. Yeah, well, I don't even know that it's being careful. I just think it's being thoughtful. And prudent. Being thoughtful about your risk management. So many people are very thoughtful about the trade, the execution of the trade, but people are, do not spend nearly as many resources on the risk management side of things. And I think that's something we specialize in. And you, know, you can check my Twitter and all the retweets that I tweet every day. It's working. Yeah, great stuff. Thank you so much. And thanks for all the great questions. If we don't have time for them, just roll up again. And we pay attention to them. And sometimes they give us ideas for shows or things that we need to focus on for you. So we appreciate all of the commentary. Don't think it's wasted just because I didn't ask it today. So just wanted to make sure we got that in there. Thanks, everybody. We'll be back same time tomorrow. Take care and good luck out there. Thanks for joining us, everyone. Today's Real Vision Daily Briefing is sponsored by Crane Shares. Learn about their KCCA ETF at craneshares.com forward slash KCCA forward slash Real Vision.